Well, I invite you this morning to turn to the Gospel of Luke. We'll be in chapter 13, beginning in verse 10. You'll find that on page 872 in the Pew Bible in front of you. That's Luke 13 and verse 10. Um, I do want to uh, uh, let you know, I meant to let you know uh, when we began our service, while you're finding your way to Luke 13, that uh, in, in light of how excited we are for these people to come and join our church, that you, of course, have an opportunity to join the church as well. And uh, we are going to begin, uh, once again, our new membership process. Two weeks from today, during our Sunday school hour at 9 a.m., I'm going to be teaching the new members class for four consecutive Sundays at 9 to 10 a.m. on uh, beginning in two weeks. And you could sign up for that out at the uh, welcome desk. And certainly I'd love to have you, even if you're interested about church membership, uh, what the church believes and how we got to be where we are and what we're planning to do in the future, I invite you to come and uh, sign up for that. It should be a great deal of encouragement. So Luke chapter 10, excuse me, Luke chapter 13, verse 10. Hear now the word of God. Now he is teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over, could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on one of those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites! Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And not, not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, who Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. Our Father, we believe you have done through Christ and continue to do glorious things. Will you please give us eyes to see them and hearts to rejoice in them. May we not turn our back upon the work in which you are pleased to do out of your great power and compassion. We even ask you now, as we come as your people to sit under your word, that you would indeed do glorious things in us and through us and with us. We want to be used by you. We want to know you better. We want to be healed by you. So we come humbly, meekly before you. Say, work in our lives through your word, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. <clears throat> a normal part of life in an abnormal world is how Stephanie Hubach, the mother of a child with Down syndrome, describes disability 
in her book entitled, Same Lake, Different Boat. Disability, she says, is normal in the abnormal world. In other words, the world's not normal. We live in an abnormal world. And disability, therefore, is not a product of God's creation, but a product of the fall, a product of the rebellion. Huback writes, according to the biblical account in Genesis, tragedy struck with the fall of mankind with a devastating impact on every aspect of creation. As Paul states in Romans 8 and verse 20, the creation was subjected to frustration. Our world became an abnormal world. Disability is simply a more noticeable form of the brokenness that is common to the human experience. It is a normal part of life in an abnormal world. Well, so we see what our Lord is doing. In fact, as we studied the Gospel of Luke, we see that in many ways Jesus' mission on this earth is to fix this abnormal world. To bring the kingdom of God into the world that the world might become more and more increasingly normal until He fully heals it. In fact, keep your finger here in Luke 13 and turn to Luke chapter 4. And it's in Luke chapter 4 that Jesus begins His public ministry by giving a sermon in his hometown of Nazareth. In Luke chapter 4 and verse 17, we read, And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, Jesus says, You know why I'm here? I'm here to bring God's favor. I, I'm, I have come to proclaim good news. I've arrived that I might set the captives free. And it's exactly what he's doing here in Luke 13. Setting the captives free. There are two kinds of captives in our text. Um, one bound by the devil. Another in a prison of his own making. And so I'd simply like to walk through this passage with you this morning. Consider these two captives that Christ is seeking to free. So just two points to my sermon this morning. Right? No, not three. Not four. Right? Just two. Yep. Hey, well, I'll tell you, uh, Jeff, that doesn't mean you're getting out any earlier. Um, and so just uh, settle down and we'll enjoy these two points as God teaches us. The first captive that uh, Jesus comes to free is free this woman from suffering and oppression. May God just give you eyes to look at Jesus this morning. One who's come to set free those who are oppressed, those who are suffering. He does it in a synagogue according to verse 10. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. You won't find the word synagogue mentioned in the Old Testament. It's a creation of the Jews when they were in exile in Babylon. You see, the temple had been destroyed. They'd been forcibly carried out of the promised land. And so they gathered weekly in local groups for corporate worship. And when they would gather weekly, they would, they would sing, they would pray, 
they would read the Word of God and then someone would explain it to them. Does that sound familiar? Right? It's church. You read synagogue, just think of the church. This is what they're doing. And occasionally when a visiting rabbi would come through, they would ask him to explain the passage in which was read. It just so happened that the guest preacher on this Sabbath was Jesus. And as Jesus there, according to verse 10, is teaching, right, there in the synagogue on the Sabbath day, a woman catches his eye, according to verse 11. And there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. And so think about this woman hunched over for 18 years. Doctors would call this spondylitis deformans. It is a deterioration of the spine where the spine, rather than acting as this complex joint, actually becomes a solid, rigid mass, hunching people over. You can imagine what it would be like to live that way, not even today, but 2,000 years ago in poverty. Her pain was chronic. There was no escape from it. It impacted every aspect of her life. Her, her uh, disability limited her, limited her capacity to work, limited her nighttime rest, limited perhaps opportunities with intimacy with her husband. She moreover faced humiliation. People would stare at her undoubtedly. Maybe not quite sure how to talk to her. It's awkward. Her face down constantly, hunched over. Can't hold her head up. Maybe having to peer sideways to see who she's talking to. Consider the emotional pain in addition to the physical pain. The, the, the discouragement of almost 20 years in this condition with no hope of getting better. And then you add on top of that the whispered accusations that must have been lobbied against her. I'll remind you of what we considered last week, Luke, earlier in Luke 13. Remember, Jesus, are these worse sinners because bad things happen to them? Undoubtedly, they must have thought that about her. Right? What secret sin, heinous sin, must she have committed to get such a, a terrible, terrible disease? Now, here's this woman in great trouble. Notice, by the way, where she's at. She had church, isn't she? Despite her trouble, despite her pain, despite her suffering, despite her humiliation, this woman has come on the Sabbath day to worship her God. And it seems to me that this was her regular uh, occurrence because no one seemed to take note of her. How easy would it have been for her to stay home and not trouble with the worship of her God? Instead, she sought out God's people to give God his praise and to consider God's word in spite of all these challenges and sufferings. In fact, that's not all of her sufferings. Make matters worse, you see, she was besieged by demonic forces. You see that in verse 11. She had a disabling spirit. Jesus, in verse 16, would say, she is bound by Satan himself. And so she has this incredible uh, trouble upon her, this demonic um, at warfare against her. Now, I want to remind you who wrote the Gospel of Luke. It's Dr. Luke, right? He's a medical doctor. He believes in medicine. We believe in medicine, right? Not, not every medical issue is a demonic issue. In fact, I would, we would say the far majority um, are just medical issues. Yet her case is unique. Somehow her suffering is a result of some spiritual oppression. And, and, and the good news is, is that a guest preacher that day has come to set at liberty those who are oppressed. 
And so Jesus is there teaching, preaching his word. And this woman catches her eye and he moves to set her free. And he does so in these five beautiful steps of compassion. If Jesus begins by just noticing her, he sees her. Step one, Jesus saw her, Luke tells us. This woman who has shuffled into the synagogue, doubled over by the devil. Everyone else is ignoring her except Jesus because he takes note of the oppressed. Jesus sees the suffering. His compassion has drawn him from heaven to earth to come and to help the hurting. And he sees this woman hurting and and therefore, secondly, he calls her. You see that in verse 12. He called her over. That's interesting to me because it seems like most people who want Jesus to help them are calling for him. This woman doesn't call to Jesus. She doesn't tear a hole in the roof. She doesn't push her way in front of a crowd. She doesn't say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. She just took her place in the pew and was there to worship. And Jesus uh, there uh, calls her forward, maybe even stops his sermon in the middle of it and brings her up front in, in front of everyone. He could have gone home and no one would have minded her. No one would have thought twice about her. But he takes the initiative and calls her to himself. Why? He wants everyone to see what he's about to do. He wants them, as we saw at the end of Luke 12, to read the times. Consider what I'm doing. Consider the claims I'm making. So he calls her forward. What what must she have thought? Can you imagine? She she didn't come seeking healing. I I imagine she didn't think this man would heal her. Maybe she's scared. Maybe she thinks he's going to rebuke me. Maybe he's going to call me a sinner like all the rest. But if, if she could have looked up, she would have seen him smiling at her, I imagine, compassion in his eyes as he thirdly speaks to her. He says in verse 12, Woman, you are freed from your disability. Amen, Amen indeed. Right? He heals her just with a word. You're free. I'm here to free you. I'm here to set people at liberty. And notice, by the way, as we like to notice when Jesus acts miraculously, he doesn't pray. He doesn't say, now, Father, will you please heal this woman? He doesn't roll up his sleeves, right? He doesn't say, everybody stand back. This is going to be a hard one. He just announces she is healed. He does not appeal to a higher power because he is the higher power and simply states, you are free. And then he, out of great compassion, he touches her. Look in verse 13. And he laid his hands on her. Now, men didn't touch women in this culture. Rabbis didn't touch disabled people. And yet Christ does. He didn't have to. Could have healed her without it. He wants her and everyone else to know he loves her. By the way, this is how we, as elders in the church, pray for healing. That's we're instructed by the book of James. We set someone before us, anoint them as a special object of prayer, and we lay on hands on them and pray for healing as we see the Bible instruct us, as we see the example of Jesus. He touches her, and then eventually he heals her. You see that end of verse 13, or middle of verse 13, and immediately (laughs) she was made straight. The the impact of his touch and his words, she's cured. She stands up straight immediately, 18 years bent over, 18 years bound by the devil and Jesus undoes all that work with simple, simply a word and a touch. 
I like how Kent Hughes imagines the scene. The poor woman rose to his beckoning and doddered forward until eyes rolled upward. She could see him standing over her. Woman, he said, you are set free from your infirmity. She heard the words but did not move. The bent woman was not only bound by body but by habit. She still doubled. She felt his gentle hands urge her upward. And as she attempted to rise, she straightened to her full height, graceful, head erect, as the people gasped and exclamations came from all corners. He has come to set the captives free. This is what he does. Notice her response in verse 13. And she glorified God. She immediately begins to praise God. She identifies what Jesus is doing as an act of God. And, and, it's out, and this praise just kind of erupts from a grateful heart. She's standing up straight and she's starting to, I don't know, she's singing a solo. I don't know what's going on, but to God be the glory, right? And she wants to praise God. This is, by the way, a good day at church, isn't it? Right? And so let's, let's open up the hymnals. Let's bring back the worship leader because we have some praising to do. God should be praised for his good work. And she begins to praise him because of what he has done. And I believe that Christ would be pleased with us if we continued on with this ministry, that we would love people like Christ loves people. You see, Christ values those whom other people disregard. Everyone in Christ's eyes is worthwhile, has dignity, value, and worth because they are made in the image of God. It doesn't matter your gender. It doesn't matter your intelligence, your looks, your wealth, your age, your physical prowess. It doesn't even matter what religion you ascribe to. Everyone has value and dignity and worth simply because they have been made in God's image And therefore, they have the love of Christ upon them. And we we should be people like that, shouldn't we? we? We should reflect the compassion of Christ when we gather together and when we scatter out into our communities. We should go and be like Jesus and welcome people with difficulties and troubles. Look for ways in which we can sacrifice in order to care for others. May we love like him. But in order to love like Christ, you must first be what? Loved by Christ. That's where you'll find the power to do it. When you experience Christ's love in you, I want you to understand that Jesus is still on this mission. The compassion he had on this day 2,000 years ago is the same compassion he has today sitting upon his throne in heaven. He still is setting the captives free. So maybe you come here this morning suffering. Maybe you come feeling pressed. You need to understand that God loves you. God cares for you. You say, no one cares for me. I'm telling you, Jesus cares. No one else knows. Jesus knows. It may be physical pain. It may be emotional pain. It may be the burden of guilt, the torment of the devil, distress over grief. For 18 years, you may have been bent over by addiction or brought low by shame. And you say, no one takes note. I tell you by the authority of his word, his eyes are on you now. And he sees your pain. He loves you. 
Jesus is the one who sees and calls and speaks and touches and heals. And maybe even now you call out to him. Will you not by your spirit come and work in my heart? Will you lay your hand upon me, Lord Jesus? Will you meet my needs? Will you comfort me? Maybe, maybe today for some of you, heal you. I don't know. I don't even heal you right now. But this is the compassion Jesus had for this woman. It's the compassion he continues to have today. He continues to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Now let's be clear that when we are freed by Christ, we do not receive full deliverance, right? I mean, this continues to be an abnormal world. The kingdom is here, but it's still coming. And this woman one day got sick and died, right? She, she would meet suffering again. And so suffering remains in the world until Christ fully heals the world. But he will. One day he'll fully heal it, right? These are just foretastes of what he plans to do one day. One day there'll be no disability anymore. There'll be no suffering. There'll be no pain of any kind. Right? Please know this. There's a day coming in which the blind will see and the, and the lame will walk and the deaf will hear and everything that troubles you will be set aside forever. And so whatever weakness, my brothers and sisters, that you suffer in this life, whatever oppression you might endure, right, someday Jesus will say to you, just as he said to this woman, you are free forever and ever, and ever. He's coming. Will you not hope for that day? Will you not pray for that day? That day of full and complete freedom. And yet, I I tell you, he's already begun it. If you're a Christian, he's already started it in your life, hasn't he? Do you not see yourself in this woman's story? You two, Christian, were once in bondage, a bondage much greater than back pain or even the devil. A bondage so great that like this woman, it was beyond your ability to free yourself. A bondage to sin, prison to guilt, behind the locked doors of the wrath of God. We sang about it last week, that great Charles Wesley hymn. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Right, we were all in bondage. Yet did he not notice your bondage? Did he not see you bent under by the weight of your sin? Did he not call you to himself in the gospel? Did he not say to you, man, you are free from the guilt of sin. Woman, you are free from the wrath of God. Did he not touch you with his grace? Did he not heal your wounded soul? Free your captive spirit. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon, flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Have you been set free? He has come to set you free from your sin and your guilt, your shame, and ultimately from the wrath of God. The Bible tells us in Colossians 1 and verse 13, He has delivered you from the domain of darkness and transferred you to the kingdom of the beloved Son. So Christian, sing His praises. Proclaim His goodness. Glorify your Savior. And maybe maybe some of you this morning, you're still in bondage. Not physical bondage, spiritual bondage. Still in bondage to your sin. You need to understand this morning that no matter how great the weight of your sin you may be set free. 
that no matter how long you have lived under the crushing burden, you may be set free. That no matter how alone you feel, you may be set free. This woman has been set free. Brothers and sisters, we have been set free. Of course, it would be great if the story ended right there, right? We all just got to go home. Uh, but as crazy as it sounds, not everyone's happy with what happened. There was one who was angry. As we consider secondly this morning, that Christ wants to free us from legalism and hypocrisy. Free us from legalism and hypocrisy. Consider verse 14. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. Right? So everybody's not happy. Say, who can possibly be against this? I'll tell you who. The pastor. Right? The, the, the guy who's in charge. He's angry. He's indignant because Jesus is healed on the Sabbath. In fact, he nudges Jesus out of the pulpit. And he begins to preach to his people saying, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on one of those days and be healed, not on the Sabbath day. Right? He says to people, listen, you want to be healed? Fine. Just don't do it on God's day. Come on a weekday. Right? I don't know what he plans to do on Monday with them. Um, but he says, not this day. Why? Well, because you're not supposed to labor on the Sabbath. Right? The fourth commandment, it forbids work on the Sabbath. We are to rest and cease from work. But it never defines work. I think God leaves that up to our own conscience to define. And yet the Pharisees took it upon themselves to help out God a little bit. And they came up with all sorts of rules as to what, what, it, what uh, is work and what's forbidden, therefore, on the Sabbath. And one of their rules was that non-life-threatening conditions, you postpone relieving suffering until after the Sabbath. That, that healing someone is work. Now notice just by the way, how much work Jesus actually did, right? He touched her. Now as far as I'm aware, you're allowed to touch people on the Sabbath unless you're Jesus, right? Because you might accidentally heal somebody and we can't have that, right? And it's not working. But anyways, they say healing is, is an act of work. You can't do it on the Sabbath. You see what's in their heart. There's no pity there. There's no worship there. There's no compassion. This man has no joy in her praise of his God. He has no eyes to see the miracle before him. He doesn't really care that she was in pain or filled with shame. What he cared about is that he, she was healed on the wrong day. And just to, to let you know, it's just not pastor. There are others who share... His sentiment, we see this, verse 15, the Lord answered him. So he's talking to the pastor, but what did he say? You hypocrites, plural. All right, so there are other people in bondage to legalism, chained to their hypocrisy. They're legalists. Now we use that term a lot. What, what do we mean by legalist? Well, we, what we mean is that when you have a list of your own preferences and convictions and behaviors, right? And we all have them. There's nothing wrong with having them. Like, I don't know how you can live life without it. But what's wrong is when we take our list and we elevate that up and pretend it's God's list. And so our list and God's list, they just kind of go together, right? And, and what happens is, is we then look down upon people who don't keep our lists and congratulate ourselves 
for doing so. And so legalism is this wonderful combination of a judgmental heart and smug self-righteousness, right? And, and, and this is what uh, this man's doing, and I think it's probably in your heart as well. It's in my heart, certainly. I think it's in all of our heart. That's why I think it's so helpful for us. You see, uh, even as Butch told us this morning, you know, um, God, God, has, God has demands. Please, please don't be confused that God has commands. He has laws, right? There's, in Exodus 20, you'll find 10 of them. You should memorize those, by the way, right? Just 10. Number one, no other God. Number two, don't have idols, right? Number six, don't murder. Number seven, don't commit adultery and, and so forth. These are all good commands. They're all good for you. See, you won't understand God's commands unless you understand the God who gave the commands, right? And this is why I, I love looking at passages like this, because you get to see who this God is, and you see the God of compassion, tenderness, and love. That's the God who gave these commands to us. And so when he commands us to do something, he's doing it because it's for our good. He loves us. He wants to protect us. He knows how life works. It, it, life was his idea. He came up with it. He created it. He has a good idea of how it best works. And so God commands you to do things not to rob your joy. He's not a kill joy. He wants to kill the things that would kill your joy. Right? And I understand that some people, oh, I want this so much, but God says, no, I'm going to go for it. Please understand that God's forbidding that from you, not because he hates you, but because he loves you and you are deceived thinking that that thing will bring you joy. And when reality, it'll just bring you misery. His commands are good for us. Now, I like to use the, the illustration of God's, I'm sure I've done this before, that um, Leger and I uh, and our family years ago, we pastored, or uh, well, I pastored uh, a little uh, small church, a little Main Street church called Drake's Branch Baptist Church. Um, there's a town of 400 people, right? And, uh, just a little on the main street, just kind of like our church right here on the main street. And, um, you drive through town and there's a church and right next to the church is another building. It's called a parsonage. And that's where the pastor lives. The pastor lives in the, the church house. It's a lovely little house suited our needs. But the problem with the parsonage was not the house, was that right in front of the house was main street, right? With big rigs coming up and down it all the time. And in fact, you walk out the door and it's kind of a hill and it kind of falls off and just kind of, you know, um, right down into Main Street. And then behind the house was the church parking lot. And, and people are coming and going all the time. People are using the parking lot, turn around, right? And, and, and so it was a wonderful little house. The yard was not so wonderful. Now, parents, uh, you know, kid, kids like to play outside, don't they? And, and parents like to send their kids outside, right? Okay? And, and yet we couldn't do it because there's cars everywhere. So let's just pretend we, we put a fence around the little yard in the back. And we took our kids and said, hey, kids, listen, we got this fence up. This yard is for you. <laughs> just go crazy. It's all yours. Make forts, you know, uh, uh, you know uh, run around, make swords, have a good time, do whatever you want. It's yours. Just don't climb the fence. Because I love you. And, and, and it's dangerous on the other side. Right? I, I want you to enjoy the yard, but don't climb over the fence. I know it looks like restriction, but it's life-giving. It's to protect you. Well, see, God's law is kind of like that fence. God wants to keep his kids from running out on the street and being hit by Satan and sin. And so God says, hey, kids, I made the whole world for you. Jurors, have a good time. Enjoy it. Just don't climb the fence because I don't want you to get hurt. He's a good father. And so that was, that's like God's laws. Now what happens, here's the problem. 
is that religious people show up. And, and they say, well, you know, God's fence is good. But what if, what if we built another fence inside that fence? And we made it a little higher, you know, just to keep them from the street. And so they build that fence. And they come back a little while later. And so, you know, we like the second fence. But what if we made a third fence inside the second fence, a little bit higher? And, and you know, maybe we'll just put some razor wire on top. And, and so now we got this third fence with, right? And you know, they come back a little bit later. You know what would be good is we build a tower. And, and we put mom up in the tower. And we give her a tranquilizer gun and a big spotlight, right? And she's, whenever a kid gets close to that fence, she just shoot them, you know, just to help them out, right? Because we don't want them to get hurt. And see, what happens now is we had a, once had a yard to play in. And now what do we have? A prison. We, 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 legalism takes what God has given us. And, 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 and perverts it and makes it into this prison, right? God give them, gave them a day of rest. He says, one, one day a week, just take it off. Don't work. Worship me. And what do religious people do? They come along and, and, and they make it, make it into a prison, right? And they still do. I spent 10 years in youth ministry, right? And, and let me tell you, um, you, you know why I think youth often leave the church? Because they identify Christianity as a list of rules. And, and, and we have made rules and rules and rules. And we've turned their yard into a prison. And, and so they're just going to hop the fence. And they don't matter. it doesn't matter to them which fence. Because all fences now are these evil restrictions on them. And so they're out of there. So let's be clear. If you think Christianity makes no demands on you, that's not Christianity. God makes plenty of demands on you. But... If you think Christianity is primarily about keeping the demands, that is not Christianity. Jesus Christ did not come to the world because they were sitting up there in heaven and came up with small rules. And so he thought, I'll come down and hand deliver them to you. He came down to fulfill the rules. He came down not as a law giver, but as a law keeper. And he says, now come follow me. Let me show you how to live. It is a pursuit of Christ. And, 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 and this, the legalist can't see it. This legalistic pastor picks a fight with Jesus. And it's never, by the way, a good idea to pick a fight with Jesus. He's, he gets angry too, as we see in verse 15. And the Lord answered him, You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it to water? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? So he makes this, this comparison, right, between animals and the daughter of Abraham. He says, listen, guys, you will loose your donkey on the Sabbath for a couple hours so he could get some water. But you won't loose the daughter of Abraham who's been suffering for 18 years. And by the way, your donkey will survive a day if it doesn't get water. But you want to help your donkey out, don't you? But you'll leave this woman to suffer for another day. Right? You love your pets more than people. And he's not pleased with that. You show more mercy to a donkey than you do to a daughter of Abraham. And by the way, I would suggest you what better way to honor the Sabbath day than defeat the devil and to release people from their bonds. The Sabbath day is simply a picture of our future heavenly Sabbath, which all that will be set aside forever and ever. And Christ here is, is arguing with his pastor. You know why? Because he loves him. He loves legalists. He loves hypocrites, and he wants to free them. 
right, that they might repent. And maybe you have this in your heart too. I think we all have a bit of it, don't we? So let me just quickly, we're running out of time, but let me quickly say beware of your own convictions. Beware of your own preferences, your own laws. It's not wrong to have them. It's not wrong to be passionate about them. It's not wrong to have reasons for them. But don't lift them up to God's standards. Right? The Bible says, for instance, parents, train your children. All parents are doing this. Train them in righteousness, point them to God. But it doesn't often tell us specifically what that looks like day to day. And each family has the freedom to kind of decide what it's going to look like for their family. Right? So don't lift that up to the standard of God's law. I mean, there's hundreds of things. You know, people have opinions about what kind of cars you should drive or political parties you should vote for or, or how to dress, right? We have, or, or what's the appropriate length of a beard, right? We all have our ideas, right? <laughs> Don't impose them on other people, right? It's not God's word. Don't lift it up, right? You have your convictions. Let others live according to their conscience, right? And, and, and don't confuse your preferences with God's commands because if you do, it will lead to self-righteousness, and you ought to beware of self-righteousness, right? Because self-righteous, I think it's in all of us, as I talked about last week, it, it calls other people to repent, but never, never repent themselves. The self-righteous are too busy congratulating themselves. You never see one of these guys in the gospel say to Jesus, not once, may, you correct me if I'm wrong, not once does, does one of these guys say to Jesus, you know, I, I never thought about it like that. I'm sorry, I was wrong. Does it happen, right? They're too busy calling other people to repent to look at their own lives. Beware of self-righteousness because it will lead to a critical heart and a condemning spirit, right? We read the story and what we think, we think Jesus is wonderful, this woman's happy, and what? The religious people are angry because Jesus didn't heal rightly. See, legalists are always looking for something to criticize. No, they, they have a tendency, they, they walk into a church service trying to find out something's wrong with it. They talk to people looking for something that is wrong with them. And when they find it, they get built up with a sense of pride. It, it, of course, it's easier to live life that way. It, it's, right, it's easier to be condemning towards your spouse than to see their struggle with sin with compassion. It's easier to come down on your children with the law than to help them with grace. Right? But beware of this condemning critical heart that, that is always looking for what's wrong in people because it will lead to a lack of forgiveness. And you ought to beware of a lack of forgiveness. Uh, you, you notice how rarely one of these religious people will come up to Jesus privately and say, can we talk about this? Can we, can we work through this? You seem to know a lot. I'm confused. Help me. It happens a couple times, but it's rare. Instead, it seems like they're always fighting. They're always upset. They're always holding a grudge. They're always offended by Jesus, never forgiving. And this is what, what legalists do. They're, so e- they're easily offended. They're always upset with people, never offering grace and forgiveness. They like to talk about people, but not to them, right? And, and this lack of forgiveness simply comes from an absence of compassion. Beware of an absence of compassion. Legalistic people, they don't, they don't help people in their sin. They may give a verse. They may bark an order, do it, obey. But they don't understand life's complicated. People's lives are messy, right? Beware that I'm not having compassion for those who are struggling, even in sin, bound in sin. Because if you don't have compassion for people bound in sin, I'll tell you, you're bound in sin too. It's just called legalism. It's a different form of sin. And Christ has come to free you. 
Christ has come to free us from self-righteousness by showing us our need for grace. He's come to free us from a critical heart by removing God's condemnation for us. He's come to free us from a lack of forgiveness by showering us with His. He's come to free us from an absence of compassion by having compassion on you. He's come to set the captives free. That's what He's doing here on this synagogue day. As as He's fighting with this guy over the Sabbath. Of course, this raises the question, I think for us, I just want to handle in about five minutes in our time, is how is it that you and I keep the Sabbath? So let me just take my preacher hat off and put my Bible teacher hat on for a moment. How, how is it that we are to obey the fourth commandment? And there's a lot of debate about this in church, and, and, and let me give you my best understanding of it. The Sabbath, even as we saw in Ezekiel, that was read for us this morning, was part of the Mosaic covenant given to Israel. It was a sign between Israel and God. So, for instance, in Exodus 31, God says to Israel, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you. You may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel. It was part of the Mosaic Covenant. It was uniquely given to Israel, right? And, and, and of course, we know the Mosaic Covenant is ended. The temple has been destroyed. The priesthood has ended. There are no more sacrifices. The kosher laws have been set aside. Circumcision is passed. And the reason why is because all of it has been fulfilled in Jesus. Well, you say, well, what about the Sabbath? Well, I would suggest to you that Jesus has fulfilled the Sabbath too. That that Jesus is our Sabbath. And and, and we see this in the book of Galatians and the book of Colossians. So uh, in Colossians, uh, these legalists have made it into the church and they're they're, they're, uh, tearing the church apart because they're demanding that everybody in the church uh, hold to the Jewish rituals, including the Sabbaths, right? And Paul writes in Colossians 2, 16 and 17. You write that down if you want to look at it more this week. It's an interesting passage. He says in Colossians 2, 16 through 17, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food or drink. That's the kosher regulations. Or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Don't let them judge you by these things. Why? Verse 17. They are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. The Sabbath was a shadow Christ is the substance. In other words, the physical rest we find in the Sabbath is a pointer to our spiritual rest that we find in Jesus. You say, Pastor, how do I keep the Sabbath? How do I obey the fourth commandment? I'll tell you how. It's not simply by taking a day off. It is by stop trying to earn God's favor through your own merit and rest in Christ's work for you. He said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, all of you are beating yourself up to try to earn God's favor. Come to me and I will give you rest, he said. You can take my yoke upon you and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus is our Sabbath. Jesus will give you the rest that no one else can or no one else will. You find your rest in Christ. I'm going to rest in the work of Jesus. And then you might say, okay, I get that. But does that mean I don't rest physically? Of course you should rest physically. I mean, I don't think God wants us to work seven days a week, just um, go 100 miles an hour. It's good to have a rhythm in life. It's good to take some time off, trust God to provide for you by not providing for yourself. 
Some Christians think that Sunday is the Christian Sabbath. That's fine. Just know the Bible never draws that connection. Nor does anyone in the church for hundreds and hundreds of years. Never understands what they're doing on Sunday as a fulfillment of the Sabbath. But if you want to, that's fine for you. Uh, you, you might decide to spend time with your church family, mow the lawn. I'm going to take a nap. Amen. Right? Okay. So, um, right? Maybe you, maybe you fast from technology. Maybe put the phone down for, I don't know, like a half an hour. Right? Just, right? I just slow down a little bit. Right? Maybe, maybe, um, maybe you just try to slow down. Maybe, you, maybe when you go to the grocery store, you get in the long line. Right? Just slow down. Slow down. Maybe it's the one day a week you drive the speed limit. Right? Maybe, maybe just get behind somebody. Maybe don't pass anyone on the way home. That's just, that's just your goal, right? And if someone's slow, you're just going to drive slow. You're just slow down. You're not in a hurry. You're not rushing. Maybe you spend time in the Bible. That would probably be a good use of your Sabbath day if, if you consider Sunday to be a Sabbath. Right? We say, I'm too busy to be in the Bible. You're not too busy today, right? Turn off football for 15 minutes and spend some time in God's Word. Maybe, maybe it's the day you journal. Maybe you journal once a week and just, just remind yourself what God's done in your life. On the Sabbath, maybe you, maybe you chew your food longer, right? Maybe you go for a walk with your beloved every every Sunday and pray together, right? You find ways to replenish, slow down, celebrate God's goodness to you. That's wonderful. I think that'd be very helpful for you. You're free to do that. What you're not free is to judge people that don't do it that way. You're not free to do that. The Bible says in Romans 14, verse 5, one person esteems one day is better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Don't judge others. Be set free by the Lord. Just as he's setting this woman free, pointing to himself in this, in this service. What an incredible day in church, right? A day to remember, right? A woman's healed after 18 years, and the pastor's fighting with Jesus. Right? That will be something you remember. What do they do? Look at verse 17 as we end our time together. And he said, as he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame and all the people rejoiced at the glorious, at all the glorious things that were done by him. Right? So they're filled with joy. All the people rejoicing. Woman's healed. The pastor's rebuked. This is a good day. Right? <laughs> Amen? And they celebrate. It's passion. Enthusiasm, shouting, hugging, singing, joy. And yet, sadly, it's sad, isn't it? Some don't rejoice. It says in verse 17, some, some just keep their mouths quiet. They're too bound. Stay bound in their legalism. What about you? Are you bound today? Maybe say, you know, Pastor, um, it's good. I'm, glad, I'm happy for her, but I, I don't have a lot of reason to rejoice. Right? I, I'm in the midst of, of suffering. Why should I sing? Trouble is still upon me. I don't feel free. He didn't touch me this week. Why should I sing and celebrate? I just, if that may be your heart, I just want you to notice who's rejoicing there, verse 17. It's not the woman. It's those who loved her. They saw what God had done by someone in their church family and they rejoiced. Right? If you say, I can't sing today, I can't rejoice because of my trouble, maybe it's just good every once in a while 
Right? I, I feel like so often we walk around with mirrors in front of our face. And all we are is my problems, my trouble, my suffering. It's good to put the mirror down every once in a while, isn't it? I don't want to minimize your trouble. But it's good to look around and see what God's doing. That you might have reason to rejoice in what God is doing in other people's life. That's why I get so excited when 11 people stand before us and say, we want to join this church. We want to be part of this family. We want the gift of rejoicing with others, even when God hasn't helped me out specifically this week, right? And, and, and God is doing mighty things in this church family. He did mighty things in this synagogue, and he will do mighty things in just a matter of weeks as he goes to the cross, And there on the cross, he triumphs over our sin. And three days later, he triumphs over the power of death to ultimately free us from sin and guilt, from shame and judgment. And by the way, he'll do it again. He is coming and Satan and all of his followers will be cast into hell and all who love Christ will rejoice in his work for eternity. Why don't we hope in that great day? Why don't we set our hearts upon that? When everyone who is bent and bowed by the weight of their sin and the attack of the devil will be made well forever and ever. This woman, Stephanie Hubach, this mother of a son with Down syndrome, she writes in her book of the grief that she suffered from uh, uh, the death of a, of a friend's disabled child. His name was Ben. Ben died, a family friend. And after the funeral, she was just so, so sad that she sought time to be by herself to mourn. And a man with Down syndrome found her, and he tried to comfort her. And he asked her, do you love Jesus? Well, she wasn't in much of a mood for conversation. But the man wouldn't be deterred. He said to her, Ben loves Jesus. Ben is with Jesus. And Ben grew up. And Stephanie gave gave him a polite response, wants him to go away, but he was not convinced that she understood. And he became animated and began to walk around waving his arms and said, and Ben can walk now. And finally he stopped right in front of Stephanie and looked into her face and he said, and Ben can see Jesus. Stephanie said, because of that conversation, quote, I understand there is coming a new normal for every broken down, body-weary, sin-disabled child of God who is tired of suffering in this abnormal world. May he come soon. Father, we delight in you and long for Jesus. Help us to be free by your grace. And we praise you for the freedom in which you has given us through Christ's death upon the cross, his resurrection from the dead, for we are assured eternity in perfect freedom. Come soon, Lord Jesus, we pray in Christ's name.